Welcome to Voices from the Bench, a dental laboratory podcast. Send us an email at info at voicesfromthebench.com or look for us on Facebook at Voices from the Bench. Greetings and welcome to Voices from the Bench. We are at episode 116. My name is Elvis. My name is Barbara. 116, it's got a 6 in it, and that's my lucky number, so this is going to be a fantastic episode. It better be. (laughs) (laughs) They always are. It's best we can do, anyways. So what's happening, Barb? How's Florida? How's it going in the lab? What's going on? Super, super busy. Like, right back where we were. No kidding. Yep. You have everyone back. Yep. And the units coming in are about the same they were in February? Yeah. Wow. Like, seriously. We're going to hit budget this month, and that's like crazy. It's really positive, and I've heard that from a lot of folks, that they're super busy and super maxed out, and I think it's just a great thing for our industry. That's crazy. We're not at 100%, but I don't have all the employees back, so it feels like we're busy, but we're also down, oh, I don't know, 20 30% of the people. So everyone's working a little bit harder to do the work, so... But that's insane that you're back to February numbers already. That's nuts. Yep. Yeah, it's pretty substantial, especially removables and implants. Like, I would have expected implants for whatever reason to come back a little slower, but we're busier than we've ever been in implants, which scratches my head, but I'm real grateful for it. That's nuts, and that's awesome. Yep. Let's hope that's a trend around the country. That's right. I'm hoping it is. What's the night secret? (laughs) Not sure. I just think that uh, people went back to the dentist and fortunately we've got a fair amount of DSOs and they're super busy. And like I said, I'm, I'm grateful. Yeah. I'm doing all ceramic and high-end cases and diagnostics and those are coming in too. So I'm just keeping my fingers crossed that everybody's feeling the same thing. Are you still spending a lot of time at the bench? All my time at the bench, yes. Except for when you pull me away on a Friday. <laughs> I'm going to leave it four today and go for a 97 heat index run. So that should put me in perspective a little bit. That sounds terrible. I did that yesterday and thought I was going to die, but I'm going to do it again. That's the nice thing about us runners. We never learn our lesson. (laughs) Nope. I don't think so. All right. So what's going on? Well, we want to make sure that everyone sticks around to the end of the episode again. June being Dental Technician Appreciation Month. We had a couple more people send in some audio thanks to celebrate. So make sure you stick around to the end of the episode. All right. And we have a super exciting conversation for you today. We had the chance to, after a few times we had to reschedule, Barb and I got to talk to Peter Peasy, CDT, from New York. Peter is a well-known ceramist, dental lab owner, public speaker, and the editor-in-chief of Inside Dental Technology magazine. We talk about his early days in the industry, how he got into speaking, life in New York during COVID, and his thoughts on where we need to go as an industry to succeed. So join us as we chat with Peter Peasy. Barb, I got a call from a doctor who's looking for a new lab. What? That's awesome. Did they start to send you work yet? Yeah. But unfortunately, her impressions are terrible. Miss margins, distortions all over. (laughs) I don't know what to do. Well, she's probably looking for a new lab because the last lab stopped taking her impressions. You know, bad dentists, they go from lab to lab to lab. Yeah, that's probably what she's doing. But you know, I just got this account. I don't want to lose it. When I talked to her, I asked what impression material she was using, and it was some brand I've never heard of. Yeah, there's a lot of crappy impressions out there. I don't understand why offices use cheaper materials to save money up front, but in the end, it ends up costing them twice as much and with all the remakes for us and for them that they end up doing. And, you know, we got to eat remake costs. Yeah, that's so true. I really wish I could find an impression company I could rely on for help, and the doctors can get the help they need for us to get the records we need. So there you have it. Check out Kettenbach. This German-manufactured impression material is taking the U.S. by storm. Not only do they use top-notch patented technology, but they have a dedicated customer service team that will work with your accounts, which is amazing. Interesting. So do I just call the doctor and tell her to switch? 
you know, what if she doesn't want to? Well, you know how doctors are. Most of them are pretty open and say, hey, if I can do better, please let me know. So if I was you, I would tell her to call Kettenbach Direct, give her the number of 877-532-2123. They've actually got a $99 starter kit. They will put her in touch with a local rep. And they also have a lot of materials that labs use every day, like the Panacell Lab Putty Hard and Lab Putty Soft. They've got soft reline, they've got bite registration material. And when a lab orders, you guys listen up, 25% off your first order. All you have to do is mention the code Dental Lab Podcast 25. Plus, they sell direct, so there are even more savings. Whoa, wait a minute. I've heard about that lab putty. We use it here in our lab. I didn't even realize it was made by Kettenbach. That is amazing lab putty that our technicians love. I'm going to check out kettenbach-dental.us right now and then call my new doctor. So just hearing Elvis say it's an amazing lab putty, there you go. There's a super awesome recommendation. So call him. Thanks for your support of the podcast, Kettenbach. Thank you. Voices from the Bench. The interview. We'd like to welcome to the podcast today a man that's known quite well in our industry. I don't think I've been to very many conventions where you're not speaking at. We're joined by the great Peter Peasy. How are you, sir? I'm very good, and thank you for such a nice introduction. And bigger thank you to the both of you, because I have to be honest and tell you that our profession needed something like this, and I love the fact, and I apologize for not being on here sooner. But I love all the effort and energy that you put into making this happen and helping our profession. So big thank you to both of you. Thank you. So how did you get started in this industry, Peter? I mean, did you grow up with a dental technician <laughs> as a father? Or That's a really long answer. You have about six, seven hours and I can give you the whole story. <laughs> uh, I'll tell as you we introduce part one. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did not. I grew up actually as a musician. That was my goal. Really? Musician. Cool. And I spent uh, most of my 80s traveling around the country with bands and playing and that was my focus for my career i will tell you that um, i grew up with a single mom and my mom was also a piano teacher and Mm. she was very supportive in the musical part so she allowed me a lot of let's say liberties to not focus on schooling as much as i should have and and travel with the bands and do things when i was about 14 i remember or 15 i moved out to a uh, staten island here in new york and Coincidentally, they offered a program in dental technology. And it's funny because I grew up in a small neighborhood in Brooklyn. And I remember we had an area that was called Doctor's Row, 75th Street to be exact. And it was a Mm -hmm. row of beautiful brownstones that um, were all dentists. So our neighborhood, that was the rich area, right? That, you know, a few blocks away from us. And my mother always had this thing in her head about being a dentist. So long story short, I guess as a give back, when I I went to a different high school and they offered a dental technology program, I took it just to kind of make my mom happy because she was so great with what I did. And uh, wow, what a strange path it took after that because the teacher was a guy, Danny Solomon, who was a fabulous guy. We became good friends. He was also very supportive of me musically. So he would be my teacher in the day and he'd show up in a club at night when I was playing somewhere. And and over the years, we stayed friendly and he got me a job in a lab with two great friends of mine. And little by little, I kind of worked behind the scenes in the lab as a musician dirt by day to make just a little extra money. And to be honest with you, I had no real interest in dental technology. And at some point later in my life, when my mom passed away and I was on my own, I really... uh, as I got older, I started thinking, well, I need a career. My music career is not going where I want to. And I didn't want to be a, a 40-year-old musician on the corner not working. So yeah. I got lucky and I fell into something called the master's program at NYU. Yeah, I've heard Earth. of that. Yeah. You guys may know Vinny Alleluia, who just recently passed away in our profession. Yeah. I'm going to backtrack the story a little bit just to make it make sense. So here I am, I'm working as a technician part-time. My focus is music. But as I'm getting older, I'm 26 now and 27, and music career is not doing as well as I would like. Mm-hmm. I'm starting to think about what's to do next. Well, interestingly enough, there was a guy here on Staten Island, New York, called Paul Federico. And Paul Federico was kind of the famous technician in the area on Staten Island here in New York area. And a package got delivered to my laboratory 
that had Paul Federico's name on it. Ooh, there you go. And I look at that bag and I'm like, hmm, who is this guy? What, is, you know, who, what makes him so famous, so popular? So I opened the bag and I looked at it and it looked like every other crown that I had seen before. I didn't really know the difference, to be honest with you. And by the way, at that time, I was nothing. I don't want to say nothing more because that sounds disrespectful. All I really knew was maybe making copings. I didn't really know much more about the dental sure. profession. Long story short, though, I called Paul and I kind of invited myself over to his laboratory. Right. And I walked into the guy's office that had a huge articulator, which I had never seen before, right? Because we were doing everything on metal articulators. And he was working under a microscope. <laughs> and those two things alone were kind of interesting to me. And I pushed my way into his lab and I said, you know, if you need any help, I can maybe come and help you once in a while. So I wanted to know what he was doing. Yeah. And he said, no, I don't. But you're welcome to come with me to NYU one day. Or So it was Paul who really got me involved in the NYU program. And I took that program. I was, I think, 30 years old, believe it or not. And when I came out of that program, it was right after 9-11. The next year, I started teaching part of the program. I did my first lecture and I decided that... I was really um, interested in this profession. It was, so maybe it was a second choice, but it became my main choice. I'm sorry, it's a long-winded answer, right? No, yeah. I got to know, what instrument did you play? Drums, and I, and I still play. And Drums. I don't play as well as I used to, that's for sure. But I can tell you that um, one of the benefits of being home a little bit more these last few months is I've reset my thumbs up and uh, sure. I've been getting to play a little bit more. But bad, man, am I bad these days. It's, <laughs> my brain wants to do it all, but my hands and feet aren't going anywhere. So it's kind of funny. Oh, that's great. So you went through the NYU program and, and you became a lecturer. When did you actually open up your lab? So I was working kind of part-time in, in a good friend of mine's lab. And by the way, my friends Nikki and Jimmy, who hired me when I was a kid, they are actually here in my office now. They have their own space that they, oh, they wow because we were friends forever. And when my mom passed away, my friend Nikki became a brother and a friend and a father. So it's kind of I moved in and his wife fed me for 15 years and <laughs> became my family, let's say. So, uh, yes, they're still here in the lab in my new space. I didn't officially open a lab, Barbara, until I'd say around 2001, I think, was when I really officially wow. opened the lab. And it was actually about... Two weeks before 9-11. Wow. So the place really? right now, I opened up about two or three weeks before 9-11. And I had just graduated from the master's program. And Vinny, hallelujah, offered me to do a lecture in Tarrytown, New York, which used to be a big show here in, on the East Coast, for the master's program. And what was so interesting about it, because remember, I came from a music background. I was on stage. I was used to being in front of an audience. Sure. I, I lived for being in front of an audience, to be honest. And when Vinny asked me to do a lecture, I thought, I thought of a 70-year-old, gray-haired, gray-beard, not that there's anything wrong with that because I'm 50-something today, but my thought was a dentist with one of those, um, what do you call the clear uh, cellophane things that you would draw on and it would project up on the Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. So my point was, that was a lecture to me. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to do a lecture, I don't want to do that. I want to do something interesting and fun. So it's so funny because I feel like I'm talking about something that happened 9,000 years ago, but it was 15, 20 years ago. So because music was interesting to me and showmanship was something that I think was missing from what I can see in dentistry, I decided to, my first lecture should be something different and fun. So here's what I did, which mm -hmm. is kind of crazy because now you could do it like nothing. But remember, 2001, phones were just breaking, right? We didn't have the technology. All lectures were not done three to one. They were done on a four by three screen. Oh, sure, yeah. Was, I bought three screens. Wow. I wanted three separate screens. I ran two slide projectors on the left and right screens, which were, you know, I was shooting my, my work, whatever it was, which was trimming dyes and, and silly kind of things that I was doing. Yeah on my slide projectors on the two side screens. And then in the middle screen, I bought a laptop and I learned how to use PowerPoint. And I stole some music video things and some movie clips. So I, I actually paid these two guys probably a fortune back then to illegally steal scenes from The Godfather. <laughs> <laughs> and my opening scene was the Godfather opening moment when Don Coleone is sitting in his office and the baker comes in and says, 
my daughter will never be the same. Her jaw is broken. And like I yeah, yeah. tied it into teeth. And long story short, that was kind of the opening of how I started lectures. And I put music in and I had, um, I thought it was uh, the police murder by numbers. And I talked about how we destroy cases because I was getting very interested in inclusion. And that was the first lecture I ever did. It was three screens wow. with music in the middle and two slide projectors. And it wasn't long about that was a big success. And I could tell you, you know, it's so weird to me. I'm sorry if I sound like I'm rambling, but it's kind of exciting. To no, on it. it's good. That lecture was on September 28th. One o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday afternoon, about three weeks after 9-11. And I remember how hard I worked to prepare it. Sure. And I remember walking in the room thinking, who cares anymore? Right? Because 9-11 had just happened. Yeah. Yeah. I got lucky. There were about 25 people that showed up to the lecture. And Judy Fishman was one of them. Nice. And it just snowballed. Like that lecture seemed like it was a hit. And then the next one came and the next one came. And before I knew it, I heard about a guy in California who was able to shoot PowerPoint on one screen. And I thought, ooh, wow. that would be pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. So I hired that guy. Smart. And I brought him to New York. His name is James Cowhart, by the way. And James yeah. Cowhart, you guys may know, is the number one guy in the dental profession today. He worked with Peter Worley. And that was the birth of three to one. Cool. And I can tell you that I've never not shot a three to one format since then, even if I went to places that wouldn't want me to. It became standard for me. And now the whole profession is three to one. And it's it's kind of like weird when I walk in and, you know, you see the crazy AV stuff and the music and the videos and, and all the things. And I feel like I had a little hand in pushing that in the very beginning. So it's kind of cool. Well, I'm thankful because I don't want to watch people draw on one of those boards anymore <laughs> where they project it up and... I don't need a whiteboard on stage and nice. It's changed. With the whole COVID coming out and the pandemic and all that, you probably miss lecturing, don't you? I think we've canceled every meeting that I was going to attend for the last two months and the next two months. And I really miss it. Like I miss seeing people. I miss listening, learning. Is that kind of uh, how you're feeling right now? Because I'm sure you canceled a few. Yeah, Barbara, it's really hard. for. I, I mean, I have to be honest. I'm in my lab five days a week. I'm a working technician but I'm traveling usually three times a month. So I, I yeah. leave my lab on Thursday nights or Friday mornings. I work all weekend, come back on Sunday and get back to the lab and get back to work. Yeah. And I believe to be a good teacher, you have to really be working. You have to really have new cases and new things to talk about. So it's part of my pride, but I could tell you I get burnt out, right? Because I'm traveling three times a month and preparing new lectures. And sometimes I go away and I'll do five lectures in one weekend in different locations. Wow. And it's kind of crazy. And then I come home and I get burnt out. And then the minute I have two, three, four weekends off, which is very rare, I'm sitting there going, hmm, okay, <laughs> when's the next one? I, you know, Jones and starts happening, yeah. what's going on. And, and I guess maybe that's the uh, performer in me. Yeah, I think, so. I think it's important. I miss it. That's the reason the drums came out. You got bored. Yes, it did. It's kind of fun to start thinking through them a little bit. That's for sure. Yeah, we should be on our way to Lab Day West right now. You know that, right? Yeah, actually, I think it's Lab Day West or would it be it would have been Florida last weekend? And yes, Lab yeah. Day this weekend. And we would have been probably on a plane right now. You want to know what's really kind of funny? If you look at my calendar, I had just gotten back. I was in... I think like Iowa, then I went to Minnesota, then I went to London, then I came back from London and I went straight to Minnesota again. Wow. And then my next trip was to China. I had two weeks in China. Wow. Hmm. Obviously that got canceled because of Wuhan had just started coming to surface. Yeah. And I said, okay, I get it. I'm not going to go, no problem. And then my next trip after that was to Seattle which was exactly when the Seattle nerve. And then my next trip was to California. It was kind of like I was going in the path of COVID. It was like okay. anywhere they were going, I was going. I see a conspiracy theory here. Yeah. <laughs> they all got canceled. And uh, yeah, I'm jonesing to get out with everybody. And That's why I asked, because I was going to be at Florida meeting as well, speaking there. And Elvis and I travel all the time. And it's like, I get burnout too, but I really miss it. And I can't wait to get back out there and, you know, start talking to people again. And just, 
the whole vibe of it. I always remember passing you. I've passed you where you're going to a lecture and you can literally feel your energy and you're just like pumped up and ready to go. So it's definitely something that I noticed when I passed you a couple of meetings. Well, thank you. Yeah, a lecture for me was always more of a, you know, look, the goal of it is to teach, right? A hundred percent. The goal is to be a useful teacher to the people in our profession. I think that's number one for me. But also there's more to it. I, I always used to say when I would, would work more with the small shows, I would talk to the people who ran the shows. And my thought to them was, listen, if your show brings in 200 people that are local to your community, your job isn't just to have infomercials for them. Because let's be realistic. There's a percentage of those people who probably haven't come to that show in one, two years because they're tired of it. They're not motivated. They had enough. They've seen the same thing. I said, so really what you need is you need great education and great motivation because I think of a lecture, and if you've been to my lectures, I'm sure you see how much detail goes into the screen position, the lighting in the room, the music that's playing, the, you know, every little aspect of it is part where, it, I guess it comes from the old, um, who was the guy who, uh, Wagner. So I don't know if you guys are familiar with Wagner. Wagner was uh, back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Wagner was a composer, and he was one of the first people to put the audience in the dark. And his concept was when an audience walked into his opera or his theater, they should walk away from their life and they should walk into an environment where it was warm and friendly and, and, and had a good feeling about it. I thought that was really an interesting. And I never realized I was trying to do that, to be honest with you, until I kind of thought back on it. But I was. I was trying to make it where someone walked in my room they saw it was different and they felt like it was a different environment. Whether it was the music I chose before I started or how the lecture started with something comical or funny or serious, depending on the event and where I am, to the fact that then my job was not only to give them useful tools to go back to work with on Monday, but also to make them want to come back. And I think yeah. that's really the hard part. And that's the part where I think I enjoy it the most because you know, it's funny, and I'm sure just like you, you guys, I can remember almost every lecture. For me, it's like a mental. You could tell me, I say, yeah, well, that was in North Carolina on this day. And I remember this lady said this to me, you know, after the lecture. Mm -hmm. Kind of uh, an interesting process, how my brain, how I'm so dopey, I can't remember anything. But I remember all those little details. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's true. But the reason I bring it up is because if you remember years ago, you would have... After every lecture you did, you would get the forms back from the organization and people would write and you get to read them and you would see that, yeah. you know, people gave you all excellence or all tens and then they would write mm -hmm. something nice. And I would come home and I'd be like, wow, this is amazing. There was 130 people in that room and, and 127 of them wrote the nicest things. And who wrote, I saw you last year and I couldn't wait to come back or those kind of things. And you would think that would be enough to keep you motivated, but I could tell you what the ones that stood out were the people who hated you. Really? <laughs> because they yeah. always were. I remember that specific lecture down south, and I won't mention the town, but it was a specific lecture in the south. And I remember there was 130-something people in the audience. I got back 120-something forms, and 123 of them were amazingly nice. And yeah. one of them basically said... Who do you think you are? How can you tell us that we have to do essential more than once? You have some nerves. And, and all I kept doing was trying to figure out who that person was. That was yeah. My goal was, I need to meet this person. I need them yeah. to be my face to why I didn't connect with them. What did I do wrong? It's kind of a, yeah. That's what feeds you. It's the desire to be perfect. It's that yeah. whole perfection. I think when I'm doing a single central, I probably do it three or four times. So. <laughs> I get it. Either that or convince them to do too. <laughs> like yeah, that. we had policies in place for that, and we still do. I mean, I think, you know, when you get into real work today, I, I did a lecture, a webinar, I think on, uh, what was it, Tuesday this week, and, and I said the truth. I mean, years ago, we knew that every single central we sent out, only about 30% of them actually went in the patient's mouth, and that yeah. never meant they were good. That just meant that either the patient was breaking the facial <laughs> or they didn't yeah. care, or the doctor didn't notice. But 70% of the time, they came back. And I think those numbers have changed in a good way 
because of all the great technology. We have such amazing photography today. All my doctors are mm -hmm. fabulous photo shooters and the communication and polarize and concepts. And so it doesn't mean we're perfect though, because I could show you centrals I did 10 years ago or ones I did yesterday. And I hate them all <laughs> to me. None of them are good because when you look at them on a, a huge screen, you start to realize, wow, I wish I could have got a little better of this or a little less of that. And I think that's where the challenge comes in. Oh, yeah. So what type of lab do you have now? Do you do mostly high-end aesthetic work? Yeah. So my laboratory, you know, I'm really lucky, Elvis. And, and, and I say lucky because, yes, I built it this way. So it was planned. At the sure. same time, I, over the years, found the right people. Right. So I, I have a five person laboratory. It's myself, my partner, Keon, who's been with me forever. Jen, who's been, I got her out of school and she's been with me now for 10 years. Abraham and, and Helen, we actually just had a Zoom meeting this morning. And the five of us are really a great team. Mm -hmm. And I, I guess, yes, you could say we, we are, I, I hate the word high end. I know I do too, but there's no other word. You know what? We try really diligently to be focused, creating a partnership with our doctors and being the best we can for the results of our patients. So really that's the goal for us. And I have doctors that are in very rich high areas that their patients fly into my lab and I see them moving into TV people. And I have doctors who are in very poor areas and we do just the same quality case for them who don't have the level of patient, movie stars and actresses. Sure. And our goal is to be the best we can, no matter who we're working with. And we look for partners today. Because it's funny, I'm, I'm, I'm really fortunate. When I say this, a lot of technicians are probably going to get mad at me. But we have, before COVID, we probably get four phone calls a week from doctors who want to work with us, right? Mm -hmm. And it's almost interesting because a lot of times, and this sounds so bad to say it this way, but I'm trying to think of a nice way to say it. It almost <laughs> sounds like they're afraid on the phone to talk to us. It's a weird... Really? It's like they'll call up and they'll be like, oh, hi, um, I was wondering, I saw a case. Maybe at some point you might be able to do a case for my wife or my page. And they always seem to have like a, a very nice approach to it. And I sit back and I'm like, we're a dental lab. Of course we want to work with. Yeah. But we're also to the point where we can't do everything. And I yeah. think the business that we built is we realized that we look for new people to work with, but we look for people who want to be like us, meaning that, why are you doing what you do? What do you believe in? What's the quality? Mm -hmm. Do you use photography? And we've gotten to the point where, and again, this sounds so snobby, but the joke in our lab is if a doctor calls and asks a fee schedule in the first minute of the conversation, that's a hang up and we don't ever yeah. talk to them again. But if they start asking about materials and photography and those things, I might be on the phone with them for four hours, right? Because now I'm interested. And I want to know more about them and their practice and, and who they are and what they're doing. Sure. And that's kind of the way we've always approached it. Are most of your clients in New York or are they spread all over the country? Or? No, we have, we have a, I'm sorry, Barbara. I was messing with him. I said, he took my question. Sorry. <laughs> she was going to ask that question first. I could tell people who are listening don't know. We could see each other right now. We're right. <laughs> For the first time on Voices from the Bench, history. Yeah. <laughs> and tell me it's not better. Come on, Elvis. Uh, I don't know if it's going to be the new norm. I'm not sure about I it. I think it's fabulous. I, I love seeing you guys and having. Yeah, I and love I it. said to Elvis before the start, I said, listen, I'm glad we do it, but I want to be able to see you because I ramble and I want to know if I'm boring you and I can change the story quickly. And it's nice to be able to see the faces. So um, I'm not on Facebook. So you, there's proof. Yeah. I'm <laughs> right now. Can you see this? <laughs> I, I won't repeat that. What you're doing. I think uh, I'm saving you. I'm, I'm covering for you. <laughs> now, what was the question? I lost the question now. Clients. Are they mostly in New York uh -huh. or are they? Yeah. So because we're a five person lab, we only work with about 15 doctors at a time. Wow. We're all over the world. So we have two on Staten Island and two or three in Manhattan. And then I have a, a doctor in Hong Kong and a doctor in Canada and a doctor. But again, we do a lot of besides single molars and single centrals, full mouth cases and big implant cases. Sure. So we're busy. You know, it's funny. What are we six weeks into COVID and yeah. We've only gotten a few cases in because New York is really shut down and a few cases yeah. came in from South Carolina last week. And But if you open my closet in my lab, it's still piled with cases We're we're always six months behind because of my travel schedule. And so it's kind of nice that we still have work here. 
that was my question also is that, you know, due to what's happening right now and being more of the fee for service clientele, if you will, you know, what, what is your gut on? Obviously you're, you're not seeing too much of it, but what's your gut feeling to those type of restorations coming back and having the fee for service and people spending the money and you're in New York, of course, it's, it's really bad there. So if you're still seeing work come in or you're starting to, that kind of makes me feel good. Yeah, I think it's a really fair question, and I have a thought on it, but I want to be cautious how I say it, because I think for me as an educator, look, I go into a lab that has 10 people, and they're a very high-end lab, and they want to fix things. And then I go into a lab that has 300 people, and they want to fix things. And they're two different businesses, right? I mean, they really are much different businesses, and I get to work in both. And by the way, I come home from both with things that I add back to my lab. I learn why I'm there. People are better business people than I am. They think through processes better than I do. And I love that. So so those are all good. But I also understand that there are different markets. And, and I'm not, if you shop in Walmart or you shop in Neiman Marcus, it doesn't mean you're a good or a bad person. It means it's what you like or don't like or, or how it works for you. And I'm okay with either one of those. And in truth, I think we need both parts in our profession. But I would also make the argument that the future of our profession, and I feel like I've been kind of saying this for a lot of years now, I think is really about a technician being way more knowledgeable than we had to be in the past. Look, in my generation in the 80s and 90s, people were becoming technicians. You kind of chose a specialty, right? Everybody wanted to be a ceramist. Everybody wanted to be something. You became a denture person, a ceramist, a this And I've been under the belief, especially for the last 10 years, that the future of our profession is going to be about you really being a technician, having a diagnostic ability, being able to communicate with your doctors and speak doctor. And I think you guys know that I lecture on both sides, right? I'm lecturing 50% of my time in the clinical environment. So I'm at doctor shows and doctor environments and and the other 50% in technician environments. So I have to speak both languages. And, and I can tell you, David Hornbrook and I did like a little tour together for a bunch of places. And it was hysterical because David, who's a fabulous dentist, we would come off stage and all the technicians would run over to him thinking he was the technician because he speaks like a technician. And then yeah. the doctors would come over to me and ask me the questions. I was speaking like a doctor. Right. And I think the point that was valid to that to me is you need to be able to do that. The viability of us, our businesses isn't going to be about how fast, how hard, or how cheap. That's not going to be the viability of you five, ten years down the road. Your viability is going to be how much knowledge you have, how much communication you have, and how many options you can pull out of your toolbox to satisfy the needs of our patients. Because they're getting tougher. Every market that I'm in, you know, I, I worked in a group, and I won't mention any names, but a group hired me that owns a whole bunch of clinical offices around the country. You know, when they call me, I'm like, why do you guys want me to come in? I don't think I'm right for you. And they're like, no, you don't understand. We see that our market needs more. We see that they're they're not happy and they're running from one lab to the next because a dollar cheaper or two dollars cheaper. And we also realize that we don't have the veneer cases or the implant cases or the combination aesthetic cases. And we realize in order for us to be viable five, ten years down the road, we have to have that. And and I agree. I think that's really our key is whatever you're doing is great, but where do you see yourself five, 10 years from today? And I think that's really the point of, for me, education is king. The more you know, the more you're worth and the more valuable you are to your clinician partners. Wow. So how do you keep educating yourself? Where do you go to learn? Are you just one of those people that's just into everything and you want to see everything and learn everything? And it's getting harder. Who's teaching you, you know, some of the new stuff, I'm saying. I got really lucky, Barbara, because when I decided I was going to stay in this profession in 2000 and 2001, I started kind of trying to figure out where to go, right? And remember, I'm sorry to keep dating myself, but remember what education was in 2000 and 2001. It's not what it was today. So I realized if I want to be a ceramist, I better go out and find the good ceramics. And by the way, I had never picked up a brush in 2000 and 2001. I was not a ceramic at that point. And I'm going to tell you the five names that if I asked you guys, if you could put yourself back in 2000, what names would you tell me who the best technicians were in the world? And I guarantee you, 
it's the same names that I'm thinking of, right? Yeah, probably. So you'd probably say uh, Claude Sieber and Don Cornell and Willie Geller and right maybe Michelle Monnier if you knew the European. Oh, okay. Yeah, I got right? it. So my point is there were five, six famous worldwide technicians that everybody kind of knew. And I'm going to tell you, at that point in my life, I had never been out of this country. And Willie Geller and Michel Manier and those guys were in Europe at that point. Mm. I wasn't going. And the one technician that seemed to be the most famous in the United States was Don Cornell. It's a long, complicated story, but I'll give you the quick version of it. I kind of sought Don out. I wanted to see why he was so famous, what made him so good. And I signed up for a class he did in, I think it was in Dallas or somewhere in Texas. And and I spent $2,000 to go to the class. I had never picked up a brush before. And I lied my way through it when he was walking around teaching saying, you know, well, uh, yeah, you know, never used this brush before <laughs> and all the silly yeah. things that we do. And I came back home to the lab I had just opened and all my friends said, you spent $2,000. What did you learn? How, you know, what could, what are you going to do different than what we're doing today? And I saw something different. And Don not only became a, a friend and a mentor and, and like family to me, and I practically lived in his house for years. The joke that I have with Don is I, I followed him everywhere for a while because I wanted him as a mentor. And it got to the point where I would invite friends of his here to my lab just so I could ask them questions about him. I wanted to know everything about him and what made him tick. And, and Don was such a bright, it still is such a bright guy and an amazing person across the board. And eventually after I took four or five courses from him, and I, then I went and took a course with Aki, and then I took another course and I started learning. Out of the blue, I called Don up at his lab one day and I said, oh, uh, Mr. Cornell, I don't know if you know me, but I've taken some courses from you and I would really like to come spend some time in your lab. And whatever that would cost me to do, I'd like to see it for real. And Don's words were to me, I'm home this weekend and this weekend. Let me know when you want to come and you're welcome to. Wow. And I flew out to California. Don picked me up on Pacific Coast Highway. I was wearing a suit and a tie, by the way, at five o'clock in the morning in California, which is a mistake. And <laughs> I was carrying two suitcases. One was filled with ceramic and one was filled with cases. <laughs> And I thought I was going to sit there and build cases all day with Don Cornell. And Don drove up in his daughter Katie's old beat-up convertible, which was a BMW convertible, an older one, in a T-shirt, flip-flops, and shorts. And he looked at me and said, where are you going? <laughs> and I said, to, to your lab? And he went, not like that, you're not. <laughs> so that was kind of my, my introduction to California weather. And now the joke that I'll get to is, I did that every three months for about a year. Wow. I would call down back, can I come back? Can I come back? And after my fifth time or fourth time, Don said to me, he goes, Peter, I don't think you can come this time. And I was like, what do you mean? What did I do? He goes, well, I'll tell you what. You can come on one condition. And I said, you name the condition I'm, I'm in. He said, you have to stay at my house. Aww. And I said, okay. And... The joke between Don and I is that was the biggest mistake he's ever made. <laughs> within a year, I had a key to his house. I had what I used to call the peasy wing. I had my own bedroom with clothes in it. I had, you know, I would come home and I'd be hanging out with his wife and we'd be cooking and making food. And I became, you know, their family became friends with my family and it became a really great relationship. And he was my main mentor and kind of inspired me. And from Don, I went to Willie. And then to Walter Gephardt and to Michelle. And, and what I always tell everybody, it sounds so calculated, right? It sounds like I picked somebody and I went to learn. And I did. Mm -hmm. But what I never expected, not only from Don, but from Walter, who stayed at my house, and Michelle, who I've stayed at his house, and, and, and Willie, for that matter, who's never closed his door to me, I never expected their friendships to be what they are to me today. And that's really the wow. amazing part, that people opened their doors and allowed me to just walk in. And it's funny to me because you know what? I have visitors in my lab all the time before this, right? And people always say to me, why do you let technicians come to your lab? And my answer is because they all let me come. They all let me come and learn and share. How can I not do the same thing for the rest of our professions? So that's the way I've always done it. And I really feel that uh, the more we can give back and share. And let's be clear. I said there were five names in 2000. How many are there today? If I asked you to name all the teachers, you would name 50 of them like it was nothing. 
which yeah. means there are better teachers. And let's yeah. remember, if there were five of them back then, those five had 20 or 30 followers. Now there's 50 and they have 20 or 30 followers. Yeah. That's why the education in our profession is so much better because I think each person, I hope I've inspired people to be better teachers and I hope each of us have keep inspiring people to be better educators and better for our profession across the board. Awesome. Our industry has always been big on sharing and it doesn't matter if you're competition or not. And that's really one of the reasons we started the podcast and more importantly, why it's so easy to do the podcast. Yeah. It's so easy to find people willing to share. It's wonderful. That's why I think what you guys are doing are wonderful. And, and I've listened to a few of them and I really, and I regret that I didn't get on earlier to talk to you guys more because I know we had a few tentative schedules. And Yeah, it's all good. And please understand, sometimes when I go some places, I'm pulled in 9,000 directions and it's hard to have time to say hello to everybody. And, you know, it's always a concern of mine because you're, you're running through a show and I have three lectures and, and I'm a last minute technician, right? So <laughs> yeah. usually I have a lecture at nine o'clock in the morning and it's four o'clock in the morning and I'm in my hotel bed still putting it together and getting it organized. Yeah. And then, you know, you have a few hundred people who want to talk to you and want to ask more questions. And then you come home and there's, you know, 400 emails about that lecture. So wow. your time becomes harder and harder to kind of manage it. But I think I've really always tried to make a, a concerted effort to never lose the ability to talk to everybody and kind of be as close as I can. And and I think that's the luxury I had with Don and with Willie and Walter and Michelle and all those people. So, and I don't put myself in their league by any means. I don't mean it that way. I, I really just mean it that they were there for me and I want to be there for everybody else that I can be to help and grow because we need it in our profession. We do. Absolutely. It's what makes us grow. Yeah, and we need it. And it's such a such a valuable part for the profession growing more and more these days. So it's we're lucky. It's a great profession. And you, you guys probably follow the numbers. I know you are so involved with so much education stuff. But, you know, after the 2008 hit, we lost a lot of technicians. We lost a lot of businesses. I would argue those numbers weren't as accurate as they seemed. You know, why? There was uh, attrition. Some people were aging out and wanted to retire. Some labs merged together. But I love the fact that we got down to about, I think, 37,000 technicians and we're back up over the 40 number again. And that makes me feel good. Yep. And again, I don't want to come off the wrong way. I'm not, not trying to take credit for any of these things, but I can tell you that I think myself... And several other people have made very concerted efforts to make that happen. And I'll give you an example of that. So obviously I'm traveling like crazy. And somewhere around 2009 or 10, I said, you know, how do we get more technicians into this field? How do we show what we can do? And what I started doing was every state that I went to that had a dental technology school, I would call the school ahead of time and say, I'm going to be in... Pasadena, let's say, and I would like to come to your school on Thursday morning and donate a half day to the students. And that kind of snowballed, right? So I've been to every school in the country and I always donate a half day. And even in Canada, I was in Vancouver, I think in January, and I I donated a half day there. But the reason I did it was because you'd have 20, 30, 40, 50 kids in these dental technology programs. And I don't think they were getting really a great picture of our profession. So I started doing that about 10 years ago, and I've encouraged all my friends that teach to start doing more of that. And I think now when I walk into a show like, you know, Lab Day West or any of these shows, when I see all the younger faces there, I'm like so proud, right? I feel like it's coming because we're, we're getting out to these people a little bit more. We're giving them a reason to come to us. And then obviously for me today with the magazine, that gives me a different reach, having IDT there for me and, and being able to reach people without always only being on a plane, you know, makes it a, a, another way to kind of reach out. One of our proudest moments here on the podcast is when we got in touch with a teacher from a dental technology school who said our episodes became an assignment. That's and that cool. made us feel so great that they had to like listen to an episode and then talk about it for like 15 minutes. She said all of them talked too much about it. Because they were excited for it. And that made us That's feel nice, so good. Yeah. Well, I'm glad they weren't on video then to see all the hand gestures that Bob was doing. Exactly. That's why we do audio only. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's very important sometimes. Especially for those of us that like to do off-the-cuff things. So, yeah. 
I think is great. I think, you know, listen, what you guys are doing is great. And I think every way that we can reach out to people. And, and for me, like I said, that's the magazine a lot too. Yeah. I want to ask about that. Yeah. Talk about that. How'd you get connected with IDT? Oh God. You know, I'm sorry. All my stories sound so long winded. I'm trying to shorten them as fast as I can. <laughs> I knew Pam Johnson and Valerie Berger years ago. Yeah. I worked with them when they were with a different magazine. And behind the scenes, we became a little friendly and I contributed to some of the things they were doing. And when they decided to go and start up IDT with the Aegis Corporation, they came to me and, you know, I'm really lucky. And I know it sounds so, it sounds weird to say, but I get to have fingers in things, right? I get to be behind the scenes when products are being developed. I played with scanners before people knew what they were. I've had the luxury of, of being behind the scenes with things. And even with IDT, I remember when it was starting and I was kind of slightly consulting or giving opinions and those things. Well, anyway, long story short, over the years, obviously, I wrote a few editorials and some articles and I was always there for Val and Pam. And about three years ago, I got an email from Pam and she said, you know, we'd like to have a meeting with you if it's okay. And we did that every few months. so I didn't think anything of it. And I remember I was sitting in my office, which is right behind where I'm sitting now. And the meeting was at 10 o'clock and I plopped down on the chair and I had my coffee and Val and, and Pam were on the phone. And they said, so here's what we're thinking. You know, we want someone to kind of be a new editor in chief in the magazine and the person should have these qualities and should do this. And as they said that, my old school brain opened the cabinet and took out an old Rolodex I had. And I started flipping through the Rolodex as they were talking to me. And I actually yeah. kind of stopped listening to them because now my brain was... Who's the person for this? Let me think of who I can help them with and get that person. And now I'm not even paying attention to them. And I'm going through my Rolodex. And like a minute later, I hear them say, well, what do you think? And I'm like, (laughs) I'm thinking, hold on. Let me see if I can find my, you know, I'm still looking for the name. And And you're the name, right? (laughs) Val said to me, did you hear what we said? And and Pam jumped back in. She goes, we were wondering if you would be willing to do it. And I was like, aww. Oh, okay. <laughs> I didn't know you were talking to me. Okay. Um, I'm like, wow, of course I would. And, and, and that would be an honor. And it was an honor. It really, it really was a, an amazing honor. And you know what? Kind of coincidentally, I mentioned Don before. And when I first met Don and started working with him, he was the editor in chief of Dental Dialogue. It wasn't Pam and Val's magazine. It wasn't another magazine. It was really based out of Europe. So I started working with Don right when he was taking over the magazine. And actually, it was Don who let me write my first editorials in Dental Dialogue. And then that's how I kind of got more into other magazines and other things. So when Pam asked me, I was blown away. And Pam and Val were amazing. And it's a a great company. I think, you know, my goal with the magazine has really been to try to make it more team-oriented, get a little more clinical size so technicians can communicate better, understand better, mm-hmm. and elevate the level of the cases as best we can and really raise the level of the profession across the board. And it's nice to do that, not having to be on a plane every day either, right? So I get to write. Sure. I've noticed your signature on that definite little aspect. I read that magazine monthly every time I get it. So I can definitely see that print on there. How long's it been? I think this is my third year, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I was going to say, it hasn't been too long. Time flies, I'm having fun. I think it's my third year. I could be wrong. I think so. How do you fit that in? I got to ask. Oh, I got so much extra time on my hand. <laughs> That's what you do on the weekend. You're not traveling. <laughs> you know what? My, my, I'm very efficient with my plane time. Yep. Yeah. And my plane time is normally, uh, I get on a plane, I pull up my laptop, and I start building my lectures for that weekend or that show or wherever I'm going. And then, and also what I do, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm really kind of, um, I'm loopy and dopey in so many ways, but when it comes to some things, I'm really precise and kind of controlling. So if you look at my laptop, which by the way, I change my laptop every two years, right? So the reason I do that is because my laptop contains every lecture I've done mm-hmm. since 2005. So Barb, if you say, hey, I want you to come to Florida and do some work with us here, I'm going to go back and look at the last time I was either in that lab or I did that show, and I now have a record of what I did. And I'll open up that lecture, and when I get on the plane, I'm going to say, okay, here's what I taught them. Let me see what was useful for that, what I liked or didn't like, what cases I can use, which ones I should get rid of. Or maybe I was there four times in the last two years, 
And I definitely don't want to show those same four cases. So I need to build a new concept. So when I get on a plane, that's what I do. I sit down, I start working on my lecture. The good news is I have so much material these days. I have so many cases and I'm constantly adding to them that the lectures that used to take me a four hour flight to build now take me 25 minutes, right? I could build it quick. And now I have time to sit down and write an editorial or read through the articles and kind of go through magazine stuff. So that's part of my travel schedule of being able to work through all those things. So when I get back to the lab, I can focus on cases again. Wow. Busy man. It's a little crazy schedule, right? But it works. It works for me. And uh, yeah, I think it's, uh, I think it's important again to update and keep growing through the process. And you know what I found that was really interesting too, was I worked so hard the first few years to never do the same lecture over and over again. And then I realized I was wrong. And I realized I was wrong because people come back to see the same case sometimes because they didn't really Really? understand it the first time. They want to think about it. How many times have you gone to see your person that you like? I've seen Michelle show the same case with the tetracycline stain 9,000 times. And every time he shows it, I'm like, oh, wow, I didn't catch that last time. (laughs) There's a little bit more to it, right? So I think I've learned to try to balance that. I think over the years, I've learned to try to add in new, but make sure you keep the concept, the format, educational. And, and also you have to read different levels, right? Because you'll have an audience and sometimes there are people who are waxers and designers and sometimes they're ceramists and sometimes they're denture people. And we have to be able to hit them all. But it has changed, interestingly enough, is how I teach. And what I mean by that is if you invited me to your lab today, Barbara, as an example, Years ago, I would have just got on a plane and went and did a course, right? I would have did a two-day ceramic course or a two-day this course. And about five or six years ago, I started realizing it was just kind of silly. It didn't make sense anymore. And what I meant by that is I can come to a laboratory or a town and teach, but especially when you're in a lab with technicians, teaching one section of them doesn't work anymore Mm. right so let's say i go to a lab that has 50 people and they say well we'd like you to work with the ceramics and i say okay so what do you want me to teach them how to put a little bit more blue in the corner of the restoration that doesn't go very far if the model and die person didn't really understand how to design the model the proper way or cast structure wise if the substructure designer or the cad person doesn't understand how to design the substructure the right way. If you're not getting the photography from your doctors, how do they communicate the color and the shade to the technicians? So over the years, I started getting stricter in how I do that. And now my format is I'll come to your lab, but the way it works is on Thursday night, we do a photography lecture for your doctors. Mm-hmm. On Friday, I do a lecture for the entire lab. And then on Saturday, we do a hands-on component for a few groups. And then I'll come yeah. back again at another time and we'll do it again because I don't think you can make an improvement by just taking the five ceramists or the five denture persons or the five this and just making them a little bit better. It's kind of a, a poor man's way of looking at it, I believe. I love wow. that approach, especially bringing the docs in. That's great. It's yeah. You know, look, you guys, we all, we're all lab owners, right? How much better can you get if your doctors were dealing with the same thing? Yeah. And I think one of the flaws of us as technicians is And the doctors have the same flaw, so it's not just us. But you know what's kind of fun? I get the luxury because I lecture to both sides. When I lecture to the doctors, I throw the technicians under the bus like nothing has ever happened before. (laughs) When I lecture to the technicians, I throw the doctors under the bus. (laughs) It's both our fault. (laughs) But the point is, is, let's go back to the single central version. How do you know? Because I used to say, yeah, okay, how do you know that the single central was good? Because right? every time I would talk about a single central concept, there would be somebody in the audience who would say, well, you know what? I do single centrals all the time, and mine never come back. And I would say, oh, great. Do you have a picture? Mm. Oh, well, my boss doesn't have a camera. It's the boss's fault. Right. Oh, okay. Did you take a picture? No, I, I don't have a good camera. Did the doctor show you? Oh, that doctor, he stinks. He doesn't care about it. You know? <laughs> and it always became an excuse as yep. to why. And all I've tried to do is say, stop the excuses. How about... I look in the mirror, me, myself, and I know I suck. I'm not great at what I do. I know I want to be better. I'm not the best ceramist. I'm not the best teacher. I'm not the best form. I'm not the best in anything. 
but I have lots of people that I think are great at it. And I always try to get better and better at it. We tend to say I'm already great. And you know, it's them. That's the fault. Matter of fact, the first editorial I ever wrote, and I kind of rewrote it again recently for IDT was for Don. And it was called experience is a double edged sword. Mm -hmm. Just of the editorial was I was a new ceramist teaching and I would walk into shows and once or twice it slipped out, but I had only been doing ceramics for two or three years. And people would get mad at me. Wow. And they would say, well, what do you mean? I've been doing this for 30 years. And, and I said, you know, 30 years isn't a badge of courage that you should be proud of if you've been doing it wrong for 30 years, <laughs> which yeah. is quite possible. I and agree. Very much so. What you really need to do is figure out how to revamp it, right? And I said, so... If I show up at your lab and I show you how to add this one little thing in, and then I ask you to practice it for three months, and then I come back to your lab three months later and I add these little things in, and I ask you to practice that, and I do that for a year, how much better are you at the end of the year? And the answer is, I guess I'd be better. And my answer is, well, that's all I've done. I would go take something, bring it home, work on it, practice it, figure out how to improve it, figure out how to make it mine and then be able to share it. Wow. Makes sense. I hope so. We'll come on come to one of your lectures. Come on, come to my area very soon. I hope soon. I, I miss it and I can't wait to get back. I'm missing, I'm jonesing all our people and, and, and being in front of an audience. I really am. I'm sick of Zoom. <laughs> yeah. I never have to do another Zoom webinar thing again. I mean, it's fun because there's a lot of people that show up, but Yes. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah. Barb will give you a wing of her house if you go down. <laughs> Listen, the, the, the bedroom I had out in Cali was a real nice one, Barb. I'm not sure. If you, uh... I don't think I compete with Don Cornell, but I can try like that. <laughs> so what's next for you, Peter? Obviously, we're not traveling right now, and we really don't know what that future looks like. But what are you looking to do? You know, it's interesting. So I'm, I'm a five-year guy. I mean, I'm always thinking about the next five years. What am I going to do next? And it's funny because if, if you ever come to my lab, you'll see what I built in my lab. It's kind of a combination art studio and laboratory. And the plan is really think about where you want to be in the next five years and try to figure out how to put yourself there today. And, and it, it sounds hokey, I guess, but when I built my lab here, 20 years ago, I knew I was going to be teaching. I knew I was going to be lecturing. I was hoping to be somewhat of a leader in the profession. And I built it with that in mind. So the people that I picked, mm -hmm. I knew I had to pick people that I could trust to be here while I was out traveling and learning. The environment I built, I knew I had to build it so it was big enough for what I needed in the future, but artsy and good enough for what I had at that moment. And I think every part of my plan has always been that way. I think the future for me, what I've been pushing in more for the last few years is really collaboration. I think we need much more education clinically and laboratory wise. And I could tell you that for me, about 10 years ago, I started working closer with doctors. I'm a mentor at the Koi Center. Um, John and I have lectured together and, and there's so many great other dentist teachers out there that the plan was to start teaching more dentistry to technicians. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I made the switch, to be honest with you, a lot of the people who used to come to see me didn't like it. They were kind of like, you know, really? I've come to nine lectures you've done. This one was weird with what they would say to me. I'd be like, yeah, because I'm not talking about just putting a little blue in the corner. I'm talking about dentistry. I'm talking about you thinking about tissue and how that yeah. emerges from the, the cast that you're working on and how you manage the biology and the importance of, and those are the things that I think will be valuable for you five, 10 years down the road. Yeah. That was my focus. So I guess a long answer to your question is, I still believe that the combination of clinical and laboratory teaching together is gonna be a bigger point for us and, and doctors and technicians learning together might be more important than ever, especially in times like today. Yeah, I agree. I totally see how that could be beneficial. I mean, I, I have a lab full of people that I don't think really have any idea outside of the model coming in and the crown going out. Yeah, and it can't be that way forever. I mean, if yeah. it, you know, it's again, it's easy to make the excuse, right? Well, the technician says, well, I get a model and I'm supposed to make this coping and I'm supposed to put ceramic on it or, or I have this pink black. You know, let's think about how archaic we are sometimes. 
do you realize we're in the year 2020 and we still use pink wax and bite rims to yeah. put that into a patient's face and mm-hmm. say, this is where the teeth belong. I mean, really? Yeah. How, how is that po- And by the way, without a photo. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right? a great one. Yeah, yeah. Crown and bridge-wise, we've learned to start using more photography. Not enough, but more, where we can manage shade and color and information. But I go into a big lab and I go straight to the dental department and I'm like, listen, I want my ceramics to have photos from your doctors, but I wouldn't even consider doing a denture case without a photo. And by the way, if you tell me that you're going to stick a piece of pink wax in their mouth and that's going to be the determinant, when today I could print denture teeth in white material, I can actually, I mean, one of the things we did a few years ago was we, I set up three or four dentures, just random, duplicated them injected white wax into them and now when we make a white bite rim we take those teeth and we put those on the bite rim with the same measurements and landmarks and all those things and that gets tried in the patient's mouth and i'm sure they love that <laughs> yeah well that step jumps you ahead yeah. 30 steps right it saves you times and resets you you now see teeth in the patient's face and by the way it's wax the doctor could shorten them they could add a dot of wax they could mm-hmm. it's communication and in truth if we don't do everything today from how it looks in the patient's face and mouth, we're missing the point. So our lab policy is a real simple one and all our doctors know it. We do not work on cases unless we see the patient's face. And the reason we don't do that is not because we're snobby, it's because we're not good enough. We're just not good enough to know what's right until I see the face, the dominant and non-dominant sides, um, the interpupillary line, the lip dynamic and what they show and don't show. I'm not good enough. And, and that's just the aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And then functionally, I'm not good enough if I don't understand the angulation of the implant, the root emergence profile, what the biotype of the tissue is, or how I'm going to manage the biological width based on where the prep finish line is, and all of these little details. I'm just not good enough. And for mm-hmm. those of us who still pretend we are, you're missing a bigger boat because you're not. We're not good enough without the information. Well said. Wow. I agree. So that's my take. <laughs> Powerful stuff, man. <laughs> yep. Love it. We're past an hour here. That was quick. That was awesome. That conversation just flew and just, I loved it. It was great. You know, I'm always in a place in my mind some days, today being one of them, where I get to talk to somebody like yourself and get re-inspired you know, and just feel like it's not the end of the world or, you know, things don't really, I don't know. I just feel inspired. So thank you. I needed that, Peter. Well, thank you. I think it went fast because I babbled like a maniac for, I'm on 16 cups of coffee. As you <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to be on a wine though, personally, but that's <laughs> well, I can't thank you guys enough. And I think, um, please, I'll, I'll gladly come back on anytime you want. And I apologize. Yeah not being on sooner. I really do. No problem. I think this what you guys are doing is a really important thing for our profession. And any way I could help and contribute and add to it, please count me in as a, a Voices from the Bench member because I think this is fabulous. Awesome, Peter. Good luck with the magazine. You guys are doing amazing yeah. things. I see you all over Facebook and all of the things that you're doing. And it's just been really a great journey to see how that's flourished as well. So thank you for everything you've done. Barbara, thank you for having me. And Elvis, thank you for having me. And again, I'm Anytime you want me, I'm I'm back. Awesome. And we'll happily have you back on. We appreciate it, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Both of you. Take care. Bye. A big thank you to Peter for coming on to the podcast. Elvis and I really, really enjoyed talking to you. You're pretty amazing. And I really learned a lot. And you totally inspired me. With as much stuff as he has going on, we definitely appreciate him for giving us time to chat. Once dental shows start back up again, we encourage everyone to check out one of Peter's lectures. You will definitely not be disappointed. And here we go again. All this month, we are playing audio thanks that people have sent in to celebrate Dental Technician Appreciation Month. It's super easy to do. Just record yourself on your phone or your computer and thank that special person or technician or group in our industry. Nothing fancy, just how you feel about it. Email it to info at VoicesFromTheBench.com. Show them that you care. Here are the ones we got last week. Enjoy. 
Hey guys, this is Sean Nowak, President of Nowak Dental Supplies and Fiscal Officer for the Foundation of Dental Laboratory Technology. I just wanted to take a moment to thank all dental technicians, CDTs. We wouldn't be what we are as a company today without you guys. Keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. Hi, this is Razia Satudagan from Preet Corporation. I wanted to thank Chris Borms for trusting me with working for him in his company and always allowing me to be exactly who I am and do everything the way I want to do it. He never restricted me and therefore I appreciate him and his trust in me. And I believe what Simon Sink said about team is not a group of people who work together, but a team is a group of people who trust each other is actually extremely true. And I trust my team and I know my team trusts me and it feels great. I want to give a shout out to the entire Preet team. Every single person there is very, very hardworking and very sweet and honorable people. So this is just a thank you to the entire Preet team. I'm Barbara Wojan from Knight Dental Group, Florida, and I'd like to take a moment to thank my dad, Robert Warner, CDT, for forcing me many, many, many years ago when I was a young, clueless teenager into this amazing industry. He was my mentor, taught me more than I can ever tell you, pushed me to some crazy, crazy uh, places, but really made me a better technician. And I just wanted to say thanks, Dad. Love you. So there are only two more episodes this month. So if you want to give an audio thanks, now is the time. It's easy to do, and it means a lot for our industry. You can thank a coworker, a family member, a company, or anyone else you want to show appreciation for. All righty. All right, everybody. That's all we got. We appreciate it. Have a good week. Bye. Hold on, I gotta sneeze. <coughs> Who?